the Amorite and Moabite we are not allowed to marry, and we should help a donkey if it's struggling to carry. Leave a bundle of wheat in the field if you forgot. There are many mitzvot in this Parsha. There really are a lot. Okay, and with that, we will talk about Parshat Kitetze. And uh, the Parsha begins by speaking of um, a soldier who is allowed, a soldier who um, finds uh, a very attractive captive and he's so has such an overwhelming lust for this woman that uh, he found as a captive that the Torah allows him to sort of go through this strange process of uh, he she she takes him in or he he takes her in and she grows out uh, her nails and shaves off all of her hair and then after a month of her mourning for her family she can she can marry him so the um the commentaries say here that really this is just to uh appease the Yetzer Hara, to appease the, the evil inclination. But what's so surprising about this is a few things. But first and foremost, this is talking about soldiers, and as we saw in last week's Parsha, these soldiers have already been hand selected. And uh we've already seen that if you planted a new vineyard or if you uh started a new house or if um, you are almost about to get married, then, and, and also if you have uh, a verot biados, sort of a sins in your hand, all of those people are exempt from being soldiers. So you already are, start, you know, have a very, very select few soldiers, and presumably those soldiers are the best, those soldiers are the, are the you know, they, they already passed this rigorous test that they didn't have a field, you know, didn't have a new field, didn't have a, a new house, or a new wife, or a new... Uh, uh, or, or, or any sins in their hand, yet even with all of those, um, all those safeguards in place, those people in times of war, they're still uh, susceptible, I guess, to, they're still susceptible uh, to the Yetzir to Hara, to, to the evil inclination. I think this is a tremendous lesson here that regardless of, you know, how prepared we are, how much of a tzaddik uh, we, we think we might be, the reality is if we're put in times of war, so to speak, uh, maybe not literally war, in this case literally war, but if we're put in a time where there's an extreme test uh, to our Yitzhar Hara, we, we shouldn't think that we are necessarily going to be able to overcome that. Um, and that's why we have to have kind of so many safeguards uh, in place, because here the, the soldier, uh, the, 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 the soldiers are already hand-selected um, you know, and, and as I talked about in last week's Parsha, they're already, uh, you know, just the, the very best of the best, the most quality uh, tzaddikim possible. Yet even even those people in times of war, they're still susceptible to, you know, finding um, a captive that's so overwhelmingly attractive that they have to, you know, go through this process that basically the Yitzhar still overtakes them. Comment I heard here from Rabbi Wolby is that this is the only time in the Torah that basically it seems like it just says, okay, the Yitzhar is going to win. So let's just make it so it's not as bad as it would have been. But Rabbi Wolby says this is the only time where that happens. In every other place of the Torah, the Torah uh, assumes that we're strong enough to fight off the evil inclination. And um, it's only in this very unique instance where it's a time of war and there's an attractive captive and 
then and then there's some uh, some ways to you you basically have to say okay the Yitzhara won, but let's just say you know there, there's still some other ways to to go about it. But Rabbi Wolby says that's the only instance that you say okay the, the Yitzhara won, and every other case the Yitzhara should presumably uh, should should lose, and we should be able to overcome uh, our challenges. So. Um, in, in that same story, so as I said, the, this woman, uh, she cuts her hair, she lets her nails grow, she mourns, the Torah says she, she mourns over her father and her mother for an entire month. And Rabbi Akiva, he, he mentions here that um, Rabbi Akiva says that uh, what, when it says that she mourns over her father and her mother, it's really re- referring to um, her sort of, her, her motherland and her former God, when it says father and mother. And uh, what's fascinating here is that it takes an entire month of tears. She's allowed to mourn for a whole month before she moves into her new life as a, as a Jew. And I think that this is, you know, an important thing to recognize that uh, that transitions sometimes take a lot longer than we'd like to admit. That sometimes mourning, sometimes uh, getting over something takes quite some time. And uh, here, she's given an entire month with no other obligations outside of uh, just really just crying over uh, those people that she left behind, her, her family members, her homeland, her former God, all those things she's uh, able to cry over for an entire month. And uh, it sometimes takes a, little, a lot longer than we might think it does uh, to transition into um, a new style and, and a new way of life. Okay, moving on. So we, the, the Torah speaks about someone that has two wives. Uh, one wife is hated and the other one is loved. And uh, the Torah says that the double, inherit, the, the double inheritance will go to the firstborn, even if that firstborn is born to the child that uh, is, is born to the mother that is the hated mother. And the Orachayim, he mentions by the way that the Torah describes this, the, the Orachayim says it almost sounds inevitable that the first child will inevitably be born to the, to the hated mother. And as a result, um, the Orachayim says that it's really Hashem's compassion for, um, for the neglected. You know, the, the mother that was hated, she will be the one that will, uh, that, that will give birth to the firstborn, and therefore that, that firstborn will get the double inheritance. And I think that this is an interesting lesson here that the Orachayim points out that, you know, that uh, our weaknesses are bound to be tested, that this this particular individual, he, he hated this one wife. And as a result, it's Davka, that, that wife, it's specifically going to be that wife that is going to have the firstborn. And um, I think that it's a nice lesson for us that, you know, if we have a weakness in our personality, one of our, one of our midot are, you know, not quite where they should be that is going to be tested and tested and tested again in our lives on purpose. So, you know, it's specifically because um, that the, the, the husband hated that one of his wives, that the firstborn was born to that wife. And, um, and it's sort of, as the Orachayim says, it's the compassion that uh, Shem has for that neglected wife. And the, the, the husband will have to learn uh, how to overcome his, his hatred and um, actually, you know, like that, that, that firstborn son. So we're going to be, the point is, we're going to be tested uh, specifically in those areas that uh, we need extra work on. Okay, so moving on. So uh, we get to this very interesting case of the Bensorer Umora, 
which basically means this this rebellious son who um, is essentially was who is killed uh, by the court for being sort of a, a drunk and a, and a glutton. And um, even though he didn't really commit any sins, he was such a drunk that he uh, was essentially going down the wrong path. And that's why the, uh, th this child was killed. So outside of just being, you know, a scare for bar mitzvah boys, because again, this, this only applies to um, basically someone who had just had their bar mitzvah and about three months after that. So a very select amount of time. And in fact, the Gemara says that this, that uh, no person has ever been found guilty of this and no person ever will be found guilty. So it's merely just kind of to scare. But I think it's an important lesson here in the month of Elul that, you know, that, that as I spoke about, the reason this child is, is being killed is not because of what he did, but rather it's because of the path that this child's going down. You can see that the 13-year-old is going to be a drunk, is going to be a, um, it, you know, is, is going to steal from their parents, not listen to their parents. Then as a result, it kind of, if you're looking in the future, if you're uh, in, in the future, this child's going to do a lot worse than just uh, drink a lot of wine and eat eat meat and not listen to their parents. So, um, you know, in this month of Elul, kind of what path are we headed down? What uh, what direction are we headed down? Is it the direction we want to be headed down or, or should we adjust and go a different way? Uh, an important thing to ponder. Another interesting point on this. So the Gemara um, mentions that if one parent is is a mute is a cherish then is a deaf mute if if one parent is a deaf mute then uh it's impossible for and even if the child is uh stealing from their parents and and being a drunk and kind of quits fits all of these qualifications the gemara says that even if it fits all those qualifications the uh child cannot be found guilty of being a bensora or mora because one of the parents is a mute so I heard an interesting question. Why does it matter here that one of the parents is a mute? And I heard just a beautiful idea that uh, a parent, um, basically, if, if a parent is a mute, and they're not literally a cherish, they're not literally a mute, but rather it's that the parent is, you know, uh, do as I say, but not as I do. The parent, it's not that they're mute, but it's that they can't hear what they're saying. So the parent tells the child to do one thing, but on the other hand, the parent actually does another thing. And as a result, because the parent's sending these mixed messages, the parent says one thing but does another, um, if, if you have parents like that, there's no way that you could find the children liable for doing the wrong thing. So if the parent says, you know, don't, don't drink all day long, yet if they're the ones that are drinking all day long, then there's no way, there's no way, uh, no way to expect that child to... Um, to, you know, to not also not to drink all day long. So an interesting lesson from the Gemara that if a parent is a cherish, not literally a cherish, not literally a mute, but rather if the parent says one thing and they don't even hear the word, their own words, if they don't uh, adhere to what they teach, then as a result, the Gemara says uh, there's no such thing as a bensora or mora when one of the parents uh, is a mute. One of the parents doesn't hear their own messages. Moving on, so... The Torah says, don't hide yourself if you see a lost item or, you know, uh, you're an animal of your neighbor. And Rashi says that this obligation to, um, to, to retrieve a lost item, 
that only applies, um, it, or that, that I should say that does not apply to a person that is distinguished and to, you know, to a, to a Talmud Chacham, to an extremely wise sage, doesn't apply to. And sort of the test to see whether you're wise enough of a sage for this not to apply, uh, Rashi says the test is, is if the person, if this particular sage sees a lost item, would he go after it? So if he would go after it, if he were, if he were to see his animal run away and he would be chasing it, then it must be that he's not such a distinguished person that he couldn't go and chase somebody else's. So the test is, if you would chase, you know, if you would, if you would go and chase your own animal, chase your own lost item, then you would also have to chase that for someone else. And, you know, I remember seeing a fascinating thing that um, it was a video talking about how you should return, you know, lost, lost items and whatnot, a secular video, not Jewish, but it gave an example here of someone goes to a bank and they're given quite a bit too much money and they're running a little bit late to their child's uh, t-ball game. And uh, as a result, the, the parent says, you know what, uh, we will go back after your t-ball game and we'll drop off the money to the bank. But I was thinking there that the reality is that person, had they, begin, had, had they been given too little money from the bank, the most likely that parent would say, heck with your t-ball game, we're going back to the bank right now and we're collecting that money that we should have got. And uh, really what Rashi's teaching here is don't have that double standard. That if you, if you say, I'm going to you know, miss my son's t-ball game uh, to go and, and get the money that the bank didn't give me, then certainly you should do that if the bank gave you, you should do the same thing if the bank gave you too much. You know, and the same thing is here that if you call yourself such a Talmud Chacham that, you know, you, you're, it's, it's below you to collect a lost item, um, the real question is, is it below you to collect your own lost item? And if it isn't, if you're willing to chase after your own lost item, then it must be that you're, you should ch also chase after the lost item of someone else. Moving on. So uh, the Torah says, if you see um, someone else's donkey struggling to carry its load, you should help stand it up and you should help stand it up emo with him. And Rashi says, what does emo mean? What does with him mean? It means that if a person has a donkey and it's struggling and um, that person sees someone and says, hey, this is your mitzvah. You know, it, it says that you're supposed to help someone else's donkey stand up. This is your mitzvah. Come and help stand up my donkey. But I'm just going to sit around here because you have to do all the work. Rashi says, no, emo means that that the, the person whose donkey is struggling, that person also has to help his donkey stand up in addition to the other person. So I think that this is a great lesson that, you know, in times of our need, in times when we need something, it's important to recognize that certainly we can ask for help. Certainly we should, um, you know, uh, no, no problem to, to ask for help and, and rely on the community in times of need. With that being said, we should also help ourselves. We shouldn't take so much advantage of others that uh, we don't do anything ourselves, but we should put in our effort. And only then, once we put in our effort, uh, should we expect, you know, and, and okay, can we expect others to come, in, to come and assist us? So moving on, um, fascinating point here. So the, the Parsha says you shouldn't plow um, with an ox and a donkey together. And Rabbi Price uh, from Cincinnati, he, he talks about how um, basically... Why is this? Why can't you? Why can't you plow with an ox with an ox and a donkey together? He says that 
that the ox is better at plowing than the donkey. And as a result, there's going to be this imbalance. The ox is going to be a better plower. The donkey isn't going to be as good of a plower. And the ox will get angry at the donkey for not carrying its weight. And on the other hand, uh, the donkey will feel shame that it can't carry its weight and see the ox doing better than it. And uh, Rabbi Price says this is kind of the calculation that we should have in our daily lives. We should think about, you know, are we going by, by combining these two people or by making this connection or by, you know, by saying this thing, are there going to be sort of unintended consequences? By, by tying this ox and donkey together, are we going to somehow cause resentment? Is the ox going to say, wait a minute, I'm pulling all my weight, you, you donkey, you're not doing anything. Is the donkey going to feel ashamed that it can't carry? And But that applies to any part of our lives that, you know, when we uh, say something, is it going to possibly offend someone that we, you know, that we didn't think about? Or when we, you know, combine these two people uh, or when we make a, you know, when we brag about something, is it going to offend, uh, you know, somehow unintentionally, um, or unintended, is it somehow going to uh, offend or hurt uh, the feelings of someone else? So Rabbi Prey says, don't combine an ox and a donkey because uh, it might cause animosity between those uh, two animals. Moving on, so um, we are told that, we're told a, a, the, Torah, the Torah speaks about um, a husband that, that uh, hates his wife, and as a result, because of that hatred, he will falsely accuse her of cheating on him. And Rashi comments that basically that it's precisely because of the sinna, it's precisely because of the, the, the hatred that, uh, that causes someone to make false accusations and causes someone to slander. And uh, just goes to show you kind of the power of hatred that it will sort of make you sort of make up lies about someone else just to have you feeling better. Um, so, you know, just how dangerous uh, hatred can be. Moving on. So the Torah speaks about how Jews are not allowed to marry um, an Ammoni and a Moabi. So they, they, can't, measure, they can't marry a, a, a Moabite or, um, or, a, uh, or an Amorite. And... So what's interesting here is that both of these people, both of, the, both of these uh, nations are descendants of Lot. And, you know, at the beginning of the Torah, we learned how Avraham, he saved Lot. And as a result, basically, the, the Torah is saying that they should have had a tremendous amount of a Tov. They should have had a tremendous amount of uh, gratitude toward the Jewish people. Yet, when the Jews left Egypt, the Torah speaks about how they, those two nations, the Ammoni and the Moavi, they didn't offer uh, food and water when the Jews were leaving Egypt. And um, basically, they didn't show the proper Akorat Atov. And that's why they are not allowed to marry the Jewish people. But what's really astounding is that later on in the Parsha, it says that the Egyptians, that the Mitzri, they actually are allowed after three generations to marry uh, the Jewish people. So how is it possible? You know, the, 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 the Egyptians, the ones that were, uh, that enslaved the Jews, that, that threw the, the baby boys in the Nile River, how, how is it possible that, that these people are somehow allowed to marry the Jewish people, yet the Ammoni and the Moabi, the, these people that, 
the only thing they did was didn't give food and water uh, to the Jews when they were leaving Egypt. What's so bad about that? So, so Rashi talks about how bad character is even worse than violence. That bad character that 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 the um that the Ammoni and the Moavi they they should have shown a Koratov for saving their ancestor Lot, yet they had bad character and they didn't even they didn't even offer food and water to those that were leaving Egypt. And um, yet the Egyptians, basically they're fixable. The Egyptians, at least before they enslaved the Jews, they welcomed Yosef as their leader. And, uh, and, and also they were only really doing physical, um, hurting the Jews physically by physically throwing the babies in the Nile River. Yet spiritually, they were still intact. The Jews were still intact. And, uh, and I think it's an interesting thing, but that basically bad character, bad character traits, bad mutot, that's more of a characteristic of a Jewish person um, than if you have, if you have bad character, there's just almost no way, like the Ammoni and the Moavi, you're, you're banned from, you're, you're, uh, it, it's prohibited to, to, to intermarry with Jews. Yet that the Mitzri, they are allowed to become Jews and marry Jews because all they did was, you know, all they did, obviously still terrible, but all they did was physical, um, physical oppression. And physical oppression can be healed, but bad midot, those are impossible. You know, bad, bad characteristics, uh, not showing proper gratitude, that's, you know, the, the, um, that's the hallmark of the Jewish nation. You know, we're called uh, Yehudim because we are a thankful people. And um, if, if since the Ammoni and the Moavi, they weren't thankful people, there's no way that they could ever intermarry uh, with the Jewish people. Moving on, so I talked about, so the Torah talks about how um, if you make a neder, uh, if you make a, uh, a vow to give charity, to, to vow, and you, un, you vow sort of an unspecified item, uh, all of a sudden the Torah says it becomes an obligation to give that item. And uh, just interesting to note that it's actually the same in American law, that if you, in American law, if you vow to give to a certain charity, then you are uh, binded, you, you legally are ob- become obligated to uh, give, that, give that charity that you, uh, even though it was charity in the beginning, since you vowed it, that you would give it, then you're obligated to give. Um, another point, the Torah just speaks about how important it is to stay true to your word, that if you're going to give, you know, a pledge that you're going to give charity, you actually have to do it. And that's really a core, that's a core theme of um, of the Chagim, of, of especially of Yom Kippur. This idea of Kol Nidre, you know, that we say, uh, basically releasing all of those Nidarim, releasing those um, those vows that we might have said, and just just goes to show you just how central the theme of uh, staying true to your word is to Teshuvah. Okay, moving on. So the Torah speaks about how a newly married man is exempt from military service for a year after they're married. And the reason being, the Torah says, is semach et ishto, which means, uh, you know, to, to uh, basically wait, make his wife happy. And what's fascinating here is that you might think the reason that this man is exempt is to make him happy, that he would be happy to have a year off uh, with his wife, but rather the real reason is that he can make his wife happy. And uh, just an interesting point here that really the purpose of this time off, of this exemption from the military, the purpose of it is to bring joy to others, to bring joy to his wife, not to bring joy uh, to himself. And and also once that 
that man gives brings joy to his wife, then it'll probably rub off and, and bring joy to himself. But the real reason, the real fundamental reason that he's exempt from military service is not to bring joy to himself, rather samach uh, at ishto to bring joy to his wife. Okay, moving on. So an interesting uh, note about privacy actually in this week's Parsha. So uh, the if a person, if a lender, uh, a lender is not allowed to enter the home of a debtor to collect a past due loan. And basically the, the Torah says that he has to wait, the lender has to wait outside and wait for that debtor to come and give him uh, what, he's, what he's owed, but he's not, that lender's not able to enter the home of the debtor. And um, I think sort of the privacy angle here is that that lender might come in and say, why was it past due? You know, why didn't you pay on time? And the lender might start kind of looking around the house and say, gee, you have a nice uh, TV over there. You have a nice couch. You have a nice this. You have a nice that painting. And really, you didn't have the money. And to avoid this kind of animosity, to avoid this kind of uh, doubt that did the debtor really have the money and just kind of push you off, uh, and basically to preserve that relationship, uh, that perhaps that's the reason why the lender has to wait outside. And so you don't invade on the privacy of the debtor who was past due. And uh, so you don't make questions and assumptions and perhaps tarnish that relationship between uh, the debtor that said he didn't have the money and paid uh, paid his uh, his loan late. Moving on, so uh, we get to Rav Hirsch. He has an interesting comment. The, the Parsha talks about... Um, uh, that that your harvest in your field, that uh, in, in that when you're harvesting in times of harvest, that you have to leave a bundle of wheat uh, for, you, if, if you forget a bundle of wheat in the field, then you have to leave it for uh, the poor people. And, and Rav Hirsch picks up on, the Parsha says, that it really focuses on your on your harvest in your field. And uh, Rav Hirsch says it's particularly in this time, it's particularly in the time of harvest that a person feels like they are the owner of their, they, they're the owner of every single little thing that they own, that they, they're the owner of their harvest. They're the owner, you know, I'm the owner of my field. I'm the owner of my, of my harvest. And it's specifically, it's Davka in that time that a person has to be um, sort of the, the Torah mandates that if you leave behind a bundle of your wheat, then you just have to let it go. And uh, it's specifically in the time that you feel the most ownership, the most that, that, you, that you're in charge of everything about your possessions, particularly then that you have to give even extra tzedakah than normal. Moving to the last point. So the, the Parsha talks about lashes how um, someone that is given lashes before they're given, uh, before they're beaten up, basically, they're called a rasha, they're called an evil person. Yet, at the end of their beating, um, they're called an achicha, they're called your brother. And, um, and uh, w- what's interesting here, Rashi says that, that this is really how the criminal justice system in the Jewish court, in the Jewish world works, that, um, that basically punishment is only meant as a way to bring you sort of back to your brother, that the ideal, the assumption, the, uh, the, the way that everyone should, should be viewed is an achicha, is, is like your brother. 
But the the reality is sometimes people, whatever, steal, what I do, do things that are wrong. And in that case, they're considered a Russia. But once they are, um, you know, once they're punished, the criminal justice system, basically Jewish criminal justice system, totally rehabilitates them and brings them back to a full-fledged member of society, which is very unlike the Jewish, uh, the, the, sorry, the very unlike the American system where, uh, you know, someone gets out of prison, but they're still uh, tied down by, you know, they, it's hard to find a job, hard to find a place to live, hard to find all those things. And they're also have all of the effects of living in prison for so long and very different in the Jewish court where, uh, you know, you're basically you're beat up for a little bit and then all of a sudden you're back to where you were as your brother with everybody else. Okay, so just to recap some of the points I talked about here. So I talked about how the Parsha begins by um, speaking of a person who is, who, uh, speaking of a soldier who's able to marry um, a captive, that a very attractive captive that he finds that he just feels an overwhelming lust for her. And um, the Torah gives kind of a way that that, that soldier is able to marry that woman. And uh, the Sifri says here that this is really only a response to the Yetzir Hara, that ideally this soldier should not find, you know, a woman and, and uh, you know, desire her so badly that he makes her go through this, pro this process. But the Torah says, okay, fine, we'll, you, basically the Yetzir Hara is going to win, so we'll give you the, the evil inclination. It's going to win, so we'll give you an outlet uh, to make sure that it's done like sort of the Torah way. And I spoke about how, how is this possible? Because we read in last week's Parsha how basically the, the selection process for soldiers, they were very, very, you know, it was an extreme selection process. If you had a new field, a new, uh, a new house, a new wife, uh, or if you had, you had a Vero Piado, uh, then in all those instances, you were exempt from being a soldier. So presumably, if you were a soldier, you were really quite a tzaddik. You were really, uh, you know, there, and you should have been not subject to the Yitzhar Hara, not, not subject to the evil inclination. Yet, here we find in times of war, in times of extreme instances, that if even if we feel like we can over, overcome any challenge and we are... Uh, you know, better we we beat out the Yitzhar Hara all the time, like whatever. At uh, if we're put in the right, if we're put in the wrong situation, if we're put in a time like a war, if we're put in a time with a lot of adrenaline, uh, then it could be that we'll fall susceptible, and we should even be, you know, cognizant, even if we feel like we are made for that job. Even those soldiers that are designed, that are handpicked from last week's parsha, even those people can be susceptible uh, to the Yitzhar Hara. Moving on, I talked about how Rabbi Wolby talks about how this is really the only spot in the Torah where there's sort of a concession to the Yetzirah Hara, a concession that says, okay, fine, the evil inclination, it's going to win, but here's a way to sort of do it the right way. But in every other instance in the Torah, it assumes that a person can overcome uh, their own challenges. So um, this woman, this, this captive woman, she, uh, the Torah says she cuts her hair she lets her nails grows out. She mourns over her father and her mother for a month. Rabbi Akiva says that when it says father and mother, it's really referring to her fatherland, her motherland, and uh, her her former god. And I spoke about how really it takes an entire month sometimes. It takes a long time, um, a month of exclusively mourning. That's really all this woman's doing is sitting there and crying. And uh, it can take all the way up to a month 
to completely come to terms with a new lifestyle and just goes to show you just how long it long and hard a process it is to really transition into something new. Moving on, so I talk about how the, the Torah says a person who has two wives, one who's hated, one who's loved, uh, and the Orachayim says, by the way the verse is written, the firstborn child will be born to the hated one, to the, to the hated mother, and as a result, that firstborn child will be given the, a double inheritance. And uh, the Orachayim, he says that it's really Hashem's compassion for this neglected wife, for this hated wife. And that's particularly, it's, it's, it's especially because that woman's hated, that she will be given the firstborn. And I spoke about how, for us, you know, the, our weaknesses from, from the husband's perspective, he hated this wife, yet it was almost inevitable, the Orachayim says, it was inevitable that, that, that this hated wife would have the firstborn child and would be given the double inheritance. And uh, basically that our weaknesses are uh, where, we're macking, where we're lacking in our midot. It's specifically, it's tafka then, that we are going to, that's exactly, it's, it's specifically there that we're going to be extra tested. It's specifically on that hated wife that's going to be, uh, that's going to have the firstborn. And, um, and basically we'll be tested and tested and tested in those areas that we're weak and eventually we'll become stronger. Okay. Moving on, so I talked about the Ben Sorer Umora, the, the rebellious son who is basically killed for just being a drunk. He didn't really do anything wrong outside of drink and eat too much. Yet because of that, um, he, was, he was killed. And I said it's a beautiful lesson for Elul. The real reason he was killed is not because of what he did, but rather it was because of the path he was headed down. So Elul is the time there to, to recognize which way are we going? Are we going in the right direction or do we need to adjust? Do we need to go down a different path? Um, and I also spoke about how the Gemara says if one parent is a cherish, if one parent's a mute, then, that, that, uh, then, then there's no way that that son can be considered a bensora or mora. And I spoke about that not literally that the parent is a cherish, but rather the parent they're, they are, they can't hear, they, they uh, are mute, they can't hear what they're saying. The parent says one thing, and they do another thing. And, um, and basically, this concept of monkey see, monkey do, that if the parent's going to do something, then of course, the child is going to reflect that. So if the parent says, you know, one thing, says don't drink too much, and don't eat too much, and, and you know, be a, be a good child, but on the other hand, they do something totally else. The reality is they're drinking all the time. Then uh, the Gemara says, in that case, in that case where one the parent says one thing but does another, if that's if that's the kind of uh, household that, that this child's being raised in, that they're not accountable and they can't be considered a mentor anymore. Moving on, I talked about how um, you a person shouldn't hide themselves from a lost object and uh, or an animal of another. And in fact, they should take it and return it, uh, return that lost object uh, to who it belongs to. And Rashi says that there's actually an exception to this if you're a distinguished sage, if you're a Talmud Chacham, and if that particular person, if it's sort of above them to go and collect, uh, to go and chase after an animal, then they, they're not required to. But Rashi says, what's the test? How do you know if you are such a distinguished person that you don't have to go and run after the animal of a lost, you know, the, the, the lost animal of your neighbor. 
And Rashi says that test is that if someone wouldn't do this for his own animal, so let's say he sees his own goat run away, if he wouldn't go and chase after his own goat, then he doesn't have to go and chase, you know, then, then, then he doesn't have to go and chase after the goat of his neighbor. And just a great lesson for us that, you know, um, we, what are those situations where we kind of live sort of a double standard where we say, okay, yeah, if it was, if it was our lost object, we'd go running after it. But we're so distinguished that when it comes to someone else, we're not going to run after it. Uh, and Rashi says it's only you, you're you're only considered really a uh, someone that's distinguished if you yourself wouldn't go. If it was beneath you to run after your own things, then you don't have to. But uh, no double standards here. That yeah, I would chase after my own lost object, but I wouldn't go and chase after the lost object of someone else. That's not allowed. Rashi says. Moving on. So um, so. The Torah says, if you see a, a donkey that's struggling with its load, you have to help stand it up. And the Parsha says, emo, with him. Rashi comments here that this is referring to with him, meaning you have to stand it, stand the donkey up with the owner of that donkey. And Rashi says, you can't, you know, a person that needs help can't say, I need help. And in fact, you know, my, my donkey's struggling and this is your mitzvah. It says this in the, you know, it says you should help the donkey in the Torah. Come and help my donkey and I'm just going to sit here and watch you. No, Rashi says that if we want help, we have to be the first ones to help ourselves. If, if we want help, we can't expect others to do it entirely. Rather, we have to help ourselves. And then, and then, and only then once we are helping ourselves, uh, can we ask for help from others. Moving on. I talked about how um, the Parsha says you can't, you can't plow a, a shore with a chamor. You can't plow an ox with a donkey. And Rabbi Price says that, uh, that, a donkey, sorry, that, that an ox is a much better plower than a donkey is. And because of that, you're going to cause sort of animosity between the donkey and the ox. The ox is going to say, look, I'm pulling the weight for this team. Donkey, you're not doing anything. And the donkey, in turn, is going to say, wait a minute, is going to feel ashamed. Is going to feel that, you know, it can't carry its own weight. And Rabbi Price says, this is how cognizant we should be of every interaction in our lives. That are we sort of um, unintentionally making combinations like this, ox, like this ox and donkey. That we, um, that, that, you know, combinations that uh, there might be a power imbalance. Combinations that might cause one to feel like they're carrying all the weight. The other to feel like... Uh, they're not doing, you know, that feel ashamed, that they're not able to do more. Um, and are we basically causing shame to one party or making the other party angry? And uh, we should be extra cognizant, extra careful that even in the case of, even in the case of animals, for an ox and a donkey, we should be careful that we don't cause animosity between them. And certainly for people, we should be careful that uh, we don't cause uh, instances where they could could hate each other. Okay, moving on. So, uh, the Parsha talks about how when a man hates his wife, he might come to falsely accuse her of adultery. And Rashi says that it's particularly, it's, it's because of this hatred, it's because of this sinna that uh, led to slander. That if we hate someone, it's likely that an outgrowth of hatred will be that we uh, eventually will come to, to, uh, to slander that person that we hate. So moving on, the Parsha talks about how um, Jews are not able to marry the Ammoni and the Moabi, uh, the, the Moabites and the, uh, the the Moabites and the Amorites, 
because uh, they are descendants of Lot. And as I spoke about Lot, he was saved by Avraham. And basically, these descendants should have felt an extra amount of akoratatov. They should have felt an extra amount of gratitude towards the Jewish people. And but they clearly they didn't do that. The Torah says the Torah says that they these two nations they did not even offer uh, food and and water to the Jews when they were leaving Egypt. And it's because of this lack of gratitude that they are not considered valid people to marry Jews. And um, yet. It was shockingly, the Torah says the Mitzri, the Egyptians, they actually are allowed after three generations to intermarry, to, to marry Jews. And Rashi says that bad character traits, that not showing the proper akkordatov, that, you know, Jews are called Yehudim, Jews are called people that are extra appreciative. Um, that's, that's our namesake. And um, th- that basically a nation that doesn't value akkordatov, that doesn't value gratitude, that that is completely incompatible, incompatible with the Jewish people. Yet uh, the Mitzri, they only hurt the Jews in, um, first of all, they welcomed the Jews. They welcomed um, uh, Yosef when he became the king. And, uh, and on the other hand, they also had only hurt the Jews by throwing their sons in the water you know, in the Nile, they, they only hurt them physically. They didn't hurt them. They didn't necessarily hurt them uh, spiritually. But the Ammoni and the Moavi people, they actually hurt the Jews by not showing the proper Akkorah Tov. That's even worse, the Torah says. It's even worse that they didn't have those that, that, that character trait of being appreciative. That's even worse than throwing Jews in the Nile River. Really a shocking statement and just goes to show you how important it is to show uh, proper gratitude. Moving on, so... If a person makes a neder, they have to give, um, so if a person makes a, a, a vow to give charity, then um, the, the Torah says it becomes an obligation. And I mentioned how it's the same as actually true in American law, that if you make it, uh, a vow to give charity, even though it wasn't mandatory at the beginning, it became mandatory once you made the vow. I also spoke about how with the high holidays coming up here with the, you know, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, that Yom Kippur, a central part of the service is the famous Kol Nidre. And that's really asking that all of our Nidarim, all of our, uh, all of our um, vows should be released. And it goes to show you just how central that theme of staying true to our word is, just how important staying true to our word is to the overall theme of, uh, of Teshuvah. Moving on, so I talked about an interesting way that privacy is in this week's Parsha. I said that a lender, he's not allowed to enter the home of a debtor who has a past due loan. And I spoke about how this is this is to make it so that the lender might go into this home of the person that's past due and say, wow, that's a nice, you know, TV you have. It's a nice uh, a laptop. It's a nice, cow, you know, furniture. Um, interesting. You, but, you you know, you have all this, all these nice things, but you weren't able to pay me on time. And to prevent that kind of animosity, uh, the Torah says that the lender has to wait outside of the home of this person that has a past due loan. So that relationship isn't, uh, isn't soiled by the debtor, by the lender thinking poorly of, um, of, of the debtor that owed that past due loan. Moving on. So I spoke about how when, um, you, 
during the harvest season that you have to leave uh, any forgotten bundles of wheat in your field for poor people. And Rav Hirsch, he says that the language of the, the Torah says, Ketsircha besadecha, that your harvest in your field. And there's really this emphasis on the word your, your harvest in your field. In your field. And, um, and Rav Hirsch says it's particularly in times of uh, in, in harvest times, when times when finally you're collecting all your crops for the year, that you feel the most sense, the highest sense of ownership, like you did everything, you know, you, you 100% own every bit of it. And Rav Hirsch says it's Davka in those times that we have to be willing to, uh, to, to say, okay, you know what, I actually don't own everything, and if I forget a bundle of wheat, I'm going to leave those to the poor. And the Torah says it's specifically in the times that we might have the strongest feelings of ownership that we have to let go a little bit. Lastly, I talked about how when a person is given lashes, Rashi says that they the, the Torah calls them a rasha, calls them an evil person. But by the time that um, the lashes are done with, the Torah calls them achicha, your brother. And basically the default is that everybody, all the Jewish people, are your brother, are your brethren. Yet, um, you know, sometimes a person steals, person does things they shouldn't do, and then they're called a Russia. But they're, the, the whole point of the criminal justice system in Judaism is basically to correct that and to become a Russia. And I said how different that is from the American system, that basically a person goes to prison and then it's very hard to find a job, very hard to find a place to live, very hard to live generally in America because they're not considered like an achicha after they uh, serve their time. But in Judaism, they are, that after they, after they serve their time, after they were uh, given lashes, then they are considered an achicha again. They're considered your brother again. Moving to the poem, the Amorite and Moabite were not allowed to marry, and we should help a donkey if it's struggling to carry. Leave a bundle of wheat in the field if you forgot. There are many mitzvot in this parsha. There really are a lot. L'chaim, l'chaim.